Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Today, we continue our conversation with economic advisor and comedian Dom Frisby. We move that conversation into Dom's great documentary about Adam Smith and the Edinburgh Fringe, which is essentially an exploration of how individuals can self-organise to create brilliance that the elite can't even plan for. We then look at Dom's views on education and how we can create much more space for choice and self-organising, that is, more space for entrepreneurship in our economies. Hope you enjoy the talk. Thinking about the BBC, the attitude of educating the masses, shall we say, well-intentioned, they've given the masses access to highbrow stuff. Um, it just reminds me really of the, the fabulous documentary you did about Adam Smith and the Fringe. Um, and then also as well, just that wonderful metaphor. And I noticed that in, um, in Life After the State, you talk about the, the, um, the slum in Mumbai as a, the entrepreneurial center. Um, and also just, I just love the way that you talk about and, and explore the, um, the fringe as, as, as an expression of Adam Smith's philosophy. Um, I just wonder if you give us some ideas on that. Yeah, the, 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 there's a fantastic story behind the Edinburgh Fringe. The, fringe, the Edinburgh Fringe is the biggest the arts festival in the world. Um, and it's, it's an extraordinary economic success story. Before COVID came along, the only event that sold more tickets was the Olympic Games. And the World Cup sort of sold a similar amount of tickets. But the World Cup and the Olympic Games are every four years. The fringe is every year. And that doesn't take into account all the free tickets you get on the fringe. And something like four million people come to Edinburgh over the course of the month. And when you think that the population of Edinburgh is only 450,000, it's just an extraordinary economic success story. And it all happened by accident. The, it happened, it's, in 1947, there was a, there was a uh, Austrian Jewish entrepreneur who'd escaped the Nazis in the 30s called Rudolf Bing. And he had this idea that he wanted to put on a festival. And he looked at various cities around Europe and he eventually settled on Edinburgh and he raised 10 grand in subsidy and got 10 grand off his mate who'd won the money off a horse, a guy called Lord Rosebury. And he set up the Edinburgh International Fringe. And this was a, a curated fringe. The Edinburgh yeah, Festival. Uh, sorry, yeah. the Ed Edinburgh International Festival. I beg your pardon. Important distinction. And he put on brilliant acts like, uh, you know, the Halle Orchestra, the Sadler's Wells Ballet, the Glyndebourne Opera, the Vienna Phil Philharmonic Orchestra, the Old Vic Theatre Company, you know, really, really elitist highbrow stuff. And there was a load of local theatre groups. There was like a Marxist theatre group from, from Glasgow that wanted to bring, as it put it, drama of relevance to working people. And there was a puppeteer and there was various other acts. And they all wanted to come and appear at this inaugural festival because there's loads of hype about it. 
And Bing said, no, you're not good enough. You know, this is highbrow stuff we're doing here. Um, they wanted to bring the greatest in the arts or whatever they called it. And those eight or nine theatre groups were like, oh, well, screw this. I'm gonna, we're going to come and do our shows anyway. So they all just found theatres and just put on their shows in the festival, even though they weren't actually part of the main festival. And they all did really well. One of them had a really good sellout run. And so the following year, nine came back, eight the first year, the following nine came back. So that's a 12.5% growth on the previous year. And then the following, and they did well. And then the following year, 10 or 11 came back. And it just grew and grew and grew. And the festival had all the subsidy and all the mainstream media and everything else behind it. But the fringe just carried on growing. And um, by about the mid to late 50s, it was a viable competitor to the main festival itself. And by the early 70s, um, it was bigger than the main festival. And now it's way bigger. Um, so it just grew and grew and grew. Now, the difference between the main festival and the fringe is like the difference between the BBC and YouTube. At the main festival, the organisers of the festival decide which acts they're going to put on. Um, it's, it's the, it involves commissioning. Whereas the Fringe, YouTube, anyone can upload anything, anyone can go, and um, any people do go. And so you just get weird stuff, and a lot of it's semi-amateur, and a lot of it's rubbish. But, you know, for example, if you look at cat videos on YouTube, nobody would have predicted that cat videos would have become a thing, or, or um, I think educational in, in, uh, uh, um videos are the most watched videos on YouTube, self-help, education. Nobody would have predicted that, or they, they might have done, but nobody's going to commission, like, you know, a programme that explains to you how when you buy a new set of headphones and the mic doesn't work, how you fix the headphones, or, you know, how you change the battery in an iPhone or whatever. But, you know, you see, you go, how do I fix the battery on my iPhone? Oh, I'll look, there'll be a YouTube video about it. Somebody would have done a YouTube video about it and it'll just be some geeky bloke from goodness knows where. And it'll have, you know, 375 million views on it. And you're like, wow, that's huge. That guy's mm. got a big following. Or got, got a lot of views. So the Fringe was a bit like that. Anyone could go and they did and it grew and nobody quite knew what would happen. And it's loads and loads of people have launched their careers with success on the Fringe. Tom Stoppard, um, uh, Alan Bennett, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, um, right through to things like Flight of the Concords and Fleabag and stuff like that today. And it's just been, it's just grown and grown and grown and become this extraordinary success story. Of course, COVID's killed it. Or the government reaction to COVID's killed it. But even last year, like with a week to go, the government said, okay, the fringe can go ahead. And um, it was just impossible to organise a show and get it on in time, but a few people managed it and they all made fortune because there was just nothing to see and there was a huge audience for it and, and guys were making a grand a day just, you know, really crappy amateur acts with a hundred seat a room, which normally only three people would go to, rammed to the back. People had the best friends they'd ever had, some people, but the main fringe didn't really happen. So and the fringe will survive. It will come back because there's enough desire for it to happen. But it's a classic case. And, you know, you don't go to the fringe to 
help the starving in Africa or feed the homeless or or solve climate change. You go to the fringe because all you want to get discovered or you want to improve your act or you want to have fun or a combination of all those reasons or even just some people go just because they want to make money. But they all boil down to one thing, which is self-interest. And it's artists acting in their own self-interest, whether it's to make money or have fun or get discovered or get better. Um, that have made it what it is. And, it, you know, there's the great Adam Smith line that sums up everything he argued for. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker or the brewer that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. It's people that that acting in their own self-interest that, that make the world a better place. And he called that process the invisible hand at work. And boy, has the invisible hand been at work in the Edinburgh Fringe. Mm. There's a wonderful... Um line from the the show that you um that you're saying you say that everything is voluntary nobody is forcing anyone to do anything the most successful performers don't have 45 percent of their audience taken from them and redistributed to other more needy or deserving acts um and there's injustice and inequality everywhere and yet it's an accepted norm in this world you've just got to deal with it um and then you talk about some wonderful stuff about the specialization of, you know, whether people reading the Chilcot Inquiry or the a woman with a seven year old baby and stuff. And, um, you know, just the... yeah, you get these weird shows like there was a smash hit show, which is just a bloke dressed as a gorilla in a rocking chair. And he had cues around the block. And that's all he did. He just sat in a chair dressed as a gorilla and rocked. There's another show which was just a woman with her baby. And sometimes the baby would be asleep. Sometimes it would be feeding. Sometimes it would be playing. Um, there was another show, yeah, where they read the Chilcot Inquiry over the course of a couple of weeks. I mean, who wants to go and read the Chilcot Inquiry be read? But it, again, it was a sellout show. Mm. And you link in the in the in the show as well. You link in the, the the story of Adam Smith and his life story as well as some of his work on the theory of moral sentiments and um, and stuff like that. It's um, it's it's really if anyone hasn't seen it. Um, and as well, I paid 10 quid to watch that and now it's free. How about that? Oh, I'm sorry. We It didn't sell as well as we wanted it to. And then we were hoping the BBC would commission it and they didn't. So we, we were just left with it. And I thought, well, I may as well put it up on the internet because otherwise it's just going to disappear. So that's why that happened. So I hope you don't feel betrayed. No, not at all. And, and I'm wondering if it was a, if there could be another book for you, because I know that Life After the um, oh, Daylight Robbery started off as a, as a fringe um performance didn't it are that you know yeah. the, the, uh, let's talk about tax yeah let daylight robbery started as a fringe show and um in fact that film started as a fringe show as well i said i did it as a lecture um so yeah i'm looking at other ideas for another book i've got a couple of ideas but i'm not quite sure what i'm going to do yet so the, the model that you that you or that you you endorse is very much is, is I know there's an Austrian influence, but it, you're taking it back to Adam Smith and the classical, um, it, well, the, the the greatest classical economist, right? With Adam Smith and um, and everybody working. And there's one quote you have at the end of of the thing, which is a natural effort of every individual to better his own condition is so powerful that it's a it is alone and without any assistance, not only capable of carrying on the society to wealth and prosperity but of surmounting 100 impertinent obstructions with which the folly of human laws too often encumber its operation. Yeah, and that's Smith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I know you talk about that in, um, in Life After the State when you talk about education. 
and about the you know the essential destruction of an individual's or a young person's desire to learn something rather than being forced to or or threatened with punishment or fear yeah i mean it, if you read the history of education in britain in the 19th century again it's incredible that you know the population at the beginning of that century started out largely illiterate and they were moving from the countryside to work in the cities and and then gradually with the increased productivity and the industrial revolution and machines and all the rest of it um they all started to earn money and within a generation there was an entirely new middle class educated middle class and the first thing people spend their money on after the costs of essential food and shelter are covered is self-improvement education and the country went from being largely illiterate to largely literate and it would all happen on a voluntary basis and you know again we've replaced it with state education and again you just look at youtube we'd said the most watched videos are educational videos people trying to learn something and it, it there's a huge desire to learn one of the things is it, it kind of has to be voluntary. Now, the art of being a teacher, if you like, is to interest students so that they want to learn. Um, but if you sort of impose learning on them, it doesn't have the same effect. And that's why I have so much, and I'm not alone, have so much frustration with state education in its current form is, you know, there's, an, there's a set curriculum and that curriculum is decided in effect by the state or by people working for the state. It's so politicized. And, um, you know, often, you know, there have been studies of people who kids who get home educated, even if they're not formally taught stuff, they they learn and progress to a higher standard than kids in state education just by virtue of, for example, you know, they go to the shops and they buy something and they learn basic maths through the act of doing that and 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 just discovery and you know if you're interested in something you'll go away and study it and studying that thing will be a pleasure because you're interested in it and then you will learn um but if you impose it it doesn't have the same effect you know learning by rote you know it's quite useful for learning lines and learning vocabulary in a foreign language and so on you know, what's the best way to teach a foreign language? Stick somebody in an environment where people only speak that language and let him learn it. Or, or, or uh, you know, force it, hand him a book on French grammar. It, the the, the former is going to be way more effective. And that's a much more organic way of achieving that. And so I just think there are better ways to learn than schools in their current form uh, offer. And even even. Um, private schools which have much better outcomes than state schools do on the whole even they've been massively politicized because the hand of the state is is regulating so much of what they do and you just look at people who are home educated kids who are home educated have much higher outcomes mm. they, they they have their 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 job attainment and their their next stage of education attainment they're much higher you get the proportion of home educated kids who get into Oxford or whatever is much higher than private or state school. And, and home education is the most organic way of educating people. Mm. 
I know when you were talking about that, I mean, because there's been a boost in, in home education through the COVID crisis, right? And you, you talk about that in, in Life Out of the State, which I think was, what, 2013? Is that right? Yeah, 2013, yeah. Um, so really quite prescient there. And you also, as well, in, in Life After the State, you also call about the, 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 the potential or the, the impending crash of the, of the NHS, which is a, a terrifying thought, but I would say now is increasingly likely, sadly. Yeah, I don't remember... I don't remember talking about an impending crash, but I, I, did, I think I did say something along the lines of sooner or later, the burden of spending is going to bring the whole thing down. Yeah, yeah. We do, <laughs> we do seem to be closer to that point. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, really very worrying. Um, I mean, I must say, I'm, I'm amazed that things have gone on as long as they have. But one thing I've learned in the last 15 years is that stuff stuff can go when it when it's the government and they can run up deficits uh what should be bankrupt can last. i mean you just look at the bond market and you're like how is that still a thing but but it lasts a lot longer than you think it will and then when it does go it goes very quickly but but it seems to be uh you know we're, we're recording this interval in 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 um mid-february 2022 and it does feel like there's something in the air at the moment, but that something in the air feeling has come and gone quite a few times over the last decade. So I think the surprise should be that these things last longer than you expect. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And you know, normal bank, normal bankruptcy uh, measures don't apply when the state controls money. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. There's one thing I think might enhance your experience of it is to watch Dom's excellent documentary on Adam Smith and on entrepreneurship and libertarianism. Um, now, we talk about this documentary um, in our conversation, but I encourage you to watch it and to consider are there things that you could do to increase individual actions and choice in your community? Now, The Fringe was founded due to restrictions on who was allowed to perform at the Edinburgh Festival, if you weren't posh enough or sophisticated enough, then you weren't worthy as determined by the organisers and so you weren't allowed to take part. So the first acts went there at their own cost and offered something that they felt people would like to see and they were right. Now it's easy to get into the weeds with Adam Smith and the classical economist but Dom's work makes it much clearer. So look at how the fringe developed to become the economy and how one comedian also managed to change the whole economics and format of the fringe forever and how finding a way to give away your service, in this case a comedy act, meant people were finally able to make money. Now, the session starts with Adam Smith in context. Whilst he's credited with effectively founding English-speaking economics, his work is rarely studied anymore. Smith is like Charles Darwin. People quote him often, but that hardly anyone has read the actual work, and I encourage you to do that. Fascinatingly, Smith wrote a theory of moral sentiments, essentially as an advertisement for his lecture series. And he also talks, this is Dom, also talks about how Adam Smith was able to travel around Europe, learning from some of the greatest thinkers in Europe, thanks to the generosity of a great benefactor. Now, there are some great interviews with some of the UK's top comedians in the film and the most popular acts at the Fringe. At the heart of it, though, is a model for entrepreneurial action and how economists can self-regulate. So in closing, thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Do be sure to check out the links that we have in the show notes and also look out for the new podcast interviews when they are released. Until next time, keep reading. 
Thank you for listening to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit our website, www.shepherdwalwyn.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading. <laughs>